where we're covering the book of Judges in the Bible. And the book of Judges is a story of different heroes that God has used for the people of Israel throughout the time in between Joshua, the conquest of the land, and the kings, which started with Saul and then eventually led to David, the greatest king. And so we're now talking about that middle time period, that in-between time period. And the people of Israel have experienced a lot of in-between time periods. But the question that I had asked us last week is basically, you know, do you ever feel like a hero? Today I asked if you were in the Olympics, what would be your event? I think if I were the, in the Olympics, my event probably would have been something running, or at least I imagined it would be. Now I'm more mature, I understand the world a little bit better, and I would have picked an easier event. But when I was younger, running would have been my thing, particularly sprinting. I come from a family background where my dad has fast twitch muscles, and he was good at football, but my school didn't have football, and so I didn't do anything except I played the sports that we did have, and the one sport that we had that involved the most running was actually baseball. I say it involved the most running because I was not good at any of the other parts of the sport, and so I was a designated hitter for my senior and junior years, and for my freshman year, I was a pinch runner. And freshman year, I frequently got on base because our pitcher would get on base and he could not run worth anything. But he could hit the ball, and so he could get on base, and then I would be brought on to run for him. My nickname in high school was Speedy, and the coach loved it when I got on base because he knew he could steal just about anything, anytime. So there I was. Craig Van Holzen got on first base, and we were in the last inning of our game at home against Hesperia Christian. My goodness, Hesperia Christian. Oh, we hated Hesperia Christian. They were, see, I'm from Apple Valley. We were Apple Valley Christian. We were the real Christians. They were from Hesperia. And even though Hesperia in Spanish means beautiful, we did not think that of them. And so they were our main rival. Anyway, it's the last inning. We are tied. And I'm on first base because Craig Van Holzen, our pitcher, went to first base and they put me into pinch run for him. The pressure is on as I look over to my coach and he tells me to steal second base. And I'm like, okay, fine. And so after a number of times jumping back to first base when the guy threw over to me, there I was, the guy begins to pitch towards home plate, and so I take off running. I get to second base at exactly the same time as the ball. It's there. Oh my goodness, I could have been called out depending on whether the umpire thought whatever he thought or not, but he called me safe. And so I get up and I'm standing there on second base, and I look over at my coach, and he tells me, to steal third. And I'm like, no, you don't do third stealing. Third stealing is for like the really, the the crazy people, the, the crazy fast people. But he tells me to steal third. Anyway, the pitcher doesn't pay attention. So I get this massive lead. I'm halfway to third by the time he begins to make his move towards the home plate. And so I just take off and run. And then I make it to third base standing up. No problem whatsoever. I didn't even have to slide. And there I am at third base. And I look over at my coach and he does this. The sign goes like this. I kid you not. The sign that we had for something called a suicide squeeze was this. I don't know if you know baseball, but a suicide squeeze is when the person at third base pretends they're going to steal home. Now, 
Stealing home is the dumbest thing you can do in baseball because the pitcher is already literally throwing the ball to home plate. And so that means you have to make it to home plate before the pitcher, the fastest thrower on the field, gets the ball to home plate. And a suicide squeeze is when the person who's batting is supposed to then come down like this for a bunt, and the pitcher throws it, you're stealing home already, but the batter bunts the ball, and all he has to do is get the ball a foot away from the catcher, and the other guy can slide in home, and it's great. It's one of these plays that if it works well, it seems brilliant, and everybody thinks the coach is amazing. No one thinks the players are any good because the player just did a bunt, and the other guy just ran early, something along those lines. Well, I'm on third base, and I notice the first pitch, the pitcher changes from what's called a stretch to a wind-up. A stretch is when he's like this, and then he just goes and he throws the ball. A wind-up is when he does this kind of thing, you know, the whole slow, and he was a slow guy. So the second pitch, my coach goes, and I'm, because eh. that means I'm running right towards home plate when he's pitching. But, you know, I'm a freshman. I do what my coach tells me. And so this guy goes into his long, slow windup, and I take off. I'm heading to home plate, and my batter at home plate doesn't see the sign. He hadn't seen the sign, so he's not turning to do this. Instead, he's like this, and I'm running up to him. from His, his right hand, he's, his back is to me. He doesn't see me doing this thing. I'm running right up to him, and he swings away, and his bat is like here when my head is like here, and, he, and I just hit the deck. I just go down. He missed hitting the ball. He struck, but it wasn't an out. He missed hitting the ball. The catcher was freaked out because he didn't know what was going on. The pitcher was freaked out. And so he threw the ball. I slid underneath the guy's legs and I'm safe and I'm home and we win. And it was amazing. The coach and everybody came out. The guy who was at the base uh, home plate, he freaked out because he was afraid he almost took my head off. And he's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I just did that. And anyway, we won, and it was the only time in my life that I ever been actually picked up by my team and carried, I think because they were all terrified that they had almost killed me. But that's probably the event I would have been in. But I did tell you that that was freshman year of high school, right? It's sad when your most heroic moment in life happened before you could drive. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any other real heroic moments since then. And that's the sad truth, the hard truth about adulthood, is that we simply aren't the heroes we want to be. We imagine ourselves as some kind of hero, and, and there's a hero we want to be, and yet, as we grow older, we realize we're not that. But then sadly, the other half of this hard truth is that we frequently don't want to be the heroes we can be. Frequently in our grasp is the ability to be heroic about some particular thing, and for whatever reason, we just aren't in the mood, or we don't feel like we can do it. We're looking at the book of Judges because there's a principle that is revealed in Judges that repeats time and time again that I want to reaffirm to you, especially now when none of us feel ready to be heroes. It's this, I am a hero, but I need a hero. I am a hero, but I need a hero. The book of Judges is about normal people stepping into their role as being a hero. 
and also other people recognizing that they desperately need a real hero to come into their world. We talked last week about some of the details of judges you need to know, and so I'm just going to give you a really quick summary of them. The basic idea is that the book of Judges reveals to us there's this downward trajectory that humanity is always on, and the reason we're on this downward trajectory is because of something called sinful freedom. We are free in some respects, and we are sinful in many respects, and when you put those two things together, we make choices for ourselves that seem right, but lead us on a downward path. And so the trajectory of humanity is on a downward slope because of our sinful freedom. But here's the lesson we learned at the end of last week. God is a God who continually gives more grace. His pattern, his practice is to always give more and more grace. And so now we're face to face with the Israelites. And they have come out of Egypt where God has rescued them. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they had been disobedient once before. And Moses led them through their wandering in the wilderness. And then Moses died and Joshua led them into the promised land. And now Joshua is dead. And we read in Judges chapter 2, this is what we saw last week. We read in this section what happened after Joshua was dead. The bottom line is they stopped doing what God had told them to do, which was to clear out the land of all of the enemy people. They stopped doing that, and God says these words to them. I'll put it up here on the screen. It says, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. Let's keep going. He says, I will use them to test Israel and to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. What God said is, because you didn't keep the promise, I am going to stop that promise and shift to a different promise. And the different promise is now I'm going to leave all the enemies in the land and they will be an annoyance to you for your whole time here. We talked a little bit about that last week and how that changed the trajectory of the nation of Israel. But today we're going to pick it up in Judges chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to begin to learn of some of the judges that God brought into Israel. Chapter 3, verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previously had battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons, and served their gods. A couple things I'm going to mention real quickly. First of all, the reason these names are important is that you're going to see a lot of names in the book of Judges, and a lot of those names are Israelite names, and a lot of those names are not Israelite names, and so it's important for you to get clarity on who are the Israelites and who are not the Israelites. And so when you're talking about the people who are not the Israelites, they almost always show up in this list in this same order. The Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But you're also going to see other names that get sprinkled on. So if you see a name that you don't know, 
you have to try to decipher, is that an Israel name or is that not an Israel name? Is that the nation of Israel, one of the tribes in the nation of Israel, or is that someone else? Is that one of the outsiders? And it will help you uh, as you move through it. So they're important, at least to give you the framework of what's actually happening. But the most important part of that line is at the end of verse 6, where it said, they served the other gods. So, what's God going to do? Verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals, which were, Baal was a god of fertility. And sometimes serving a god of fertility involved doing fertile things as human beings. And so that's one of the ways they served the Baals. And the Asherahs, and Asherah was a pole that represented the goddess of the day. So Baal was um, sometimes a statue, but sometimes it was an altar where they sacrificed things on. And Asherahs were poles that were to worship the goddess Asherah. Anyway, keep going. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Aram Naharayim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kinaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathayim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel. Who overpowered him so the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. A couple things I want to point out to you here. This last week, Wednesday night, I had my core group over at my house. And during that time, one of the people in my core group asked a question about Othniel. And he asked a question about Othniel, son of Kenaz, who was related to Caleb. And um, we talked about it. And then when I was preparing this message, I'm in chapter 3. Now, my core group last week didn't talk about chapter 3. My core group was talking about chapter 1. But when I'm preparing for this message, I'm in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we learn about Othniel, son of Kenaz, who was Caleb's younger brother. And Kenaz wasn't Caleb's younger brother. Kenaz was an ancestor that they both shared. Othniel was Caleb's younger brother. And I realized, wait a minute, I know this name. And so I went back and I double-checked the name. Do you know who Othniel is? In chapter 1, Caleb said, I've got a city I want to conquer. If anyone does it for me, I'll give them my daughter in marriage. And Othniel is the one who conquers the city. Othniel, Caleb's younger brother, is the one who conquers the city. And back then, don't get me started about all the rules and regulations regarding marrying your uh, niece or something along those lines. It was done back then because they didn't know about the biology of birth defects and whatnot. But anyway, we're just moving along. So Othniel is the one who conquered a city. My question to you is if Othniel had conquered a city in chapter 1, How is it that this foreign king was able to rule the nation of Israel for eight years before Othniel did anything? Othniel in chapter 1 proved that he was a great warrior. He conquered a city to get a girl. But Othniel in chapter 3 is absent for eight years. He's uninvolved for eight years. 
What's going on in those eight years with this dude? Now, listen, you might be in the same place as Othniel where you're like, hey, that's someone else's deal. That's someone else's fault. That's someone else's problem. I'm dealing with my own stuff over here. I'm not going to deal with other. I don't know what Othniel's deal was. I don't know what his experience was. All I know is that he was a warrior before the eight years. And then there's eight years of oppression. And then finally he decides to do something. I don't know what Othniel was thinking during the eight years. I don't know what Othniel was thinking at the end of the eight years. But I know what happened at the end of the eight years to get him to move. Did you see it? It was in verse 10. At the end of those eight years, verse 10, it says, the spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. See, it was the spirit of God that made the difference. It was the presence of the spirit of God that made the difference in Othniel's life. We don't know what he was like before. We know he was a capable warrior, but he might have been a lazy person. We don't know what he was like during those eight years, but we know when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, that's when he stepped into his real role of being the judge. Let's keep going. Chapter 3, verse 12 now. We're going to look at a guy named Ehud. Now, I'll give you a little warning. The story of Ehud is my favorite all-time junior high Bible story. If that, no, I'll correct that. Junior high boys Bible story. Uh, junior high girls are lots more mature. But junior high boys eat this story up, and you will find out why in just a minute. Here we go. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord because they did this, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. First of all, the name Eglon is just a good name to make fun of. Eglon. It's just kind of, you know, it's a, it's a weird junior high boys kind of name, and, and it really fits with who Eglon is. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, here it is, who was a very fat man. Okay, so now you're getting the picture. Junior high boys, Eglon, good name, conquered the city of Palms, interesting city name, and Eglon was a very fat man. I just love the idea that the name that sounds the fattest to me in the Bible belongs to a man who is a very fat man. He's an Eglon kind of man, you know? And so now what happens next is the second most junior high aspect of the uh, whole story. Eglon, I think, is the third most junior high aspect. Now it's the second most. Here we go. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who'd carried it. All the people who carried the tribute, you guys go on. 
go home. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. So now it's just Eglon and Ehud by themselves. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which if you're holding the handle, <laughs> see, that's the second most reason why, you know, this is a junior high story. Even, even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud, Ehud did not pull the sword out. He just pulled his hand out. I'm, and the fat closed in over it. Oh, it's just amazing. I love that story. It's a great junior high story. And the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And now we come to the most junior high-ish of the parts of this story. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. Oh, he had relieved himself. Yes, all that needed to come out was already out. And they wanted, they waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. There are just a couple things that you got to realize about this particular story that I think are incredibly important. And the first thing is a tiny detail at the beginning that we sort of just looked over. Ehud was a left-handed man. That was considered a disability in his day. Left-handed people were at a disadvantage at warfare. Because a left-handed person was either using his bad hand to swing a sword or was, using, or was using his shield on the wrong side of his body. Left-handed people were at a disadvantage back then. Left-handed men were at a disadvantage back then. It was considered a handicap. In, that, in fact, that's one of the reasons why when Ehud entered the temple, I'm positive, they all double-checked whether or not he had a sword on his left hip. Because a right-handed man would do that. But Ehud comes in with a tribute. He's made his own sword. 
I don't know if he needed to make a custom left-handed sword. It does tell us he made a double-edged sword so it could be used on both sides. Maybe that was part of it. But, but he has it on his left thigh. No one decided to look there. It's only a foot long or so, and so it's like a dagger kind of thing here. And when he goes up to the king, he grabs the king like they ordinarily would, right arm to right arm, so that they could be close and neither one of them could attack the other one because their strong arm is now being constrained by the other person. That's the way it would work. But Eglon had a free hand. And what's interesting is that, excuse me, Ehud had a free hand. What's interesting is that Ehud's weakness was exactly his strength. The thing that everybody would have seen as his disability was the thing that made him the only one, the best one, the perfect one qualified to handle this mission, to get rid of this evil king so that Israel could be spared. It's an amazing situation that they would take a left-handed man and he would have such success. Now, there's another little detail in this story that I think also helps us realize what was truly going on. Because it wasn't just tactical. Here's a left-handed man. It wasn't just tactical. There's something else happening. And there are two key little phrases in this section that we just read that indicate this special thing that's happening. I'm going to put them back on the screen so you can see them in verse 19 and verse 26. It says this, but a On reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us, and they all left. And then in verse 26, it says, While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. Why in the world would the writer of this text want us to know with detail that twice he had been near the stone images and then did what he wanted to do? He went near stone images and then he decided to go back. Now's the time we're going to take care of this king. And then after he was ready to escape, he got to the stone images and then continued to walk past them. Why do we need to know that when he got to the stone images, he did what he had planned to do, what God had led him to do? Why do we need to know that? It's one simple reason. You and I take it for granted, but the people back then didn't. You and I take it for granted that these stone images, these idols are powerless. Here's the guy who just killed their king and he's walking right past the stone images and they do nothing. Here's the man who has a strategy to kill the king and he's at the stone images and he turns around to start taking care of his strategy and the stone images do nothing. To you and to me, that seems like it's an obvious conclusion, but to the people back then it was incredibly important. God used Ehud, and the stone images were powerless. There's one more judge we're going to look at. It's short. I mean, literally only one verse. It is the last verse of chapter 3. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. And it's like, okay, fine. So Shamgar is not a very important person. He's one of these mini heroes. He's one of these tiny little judges that we don't really care about. Unless, I need to ask you a question. Do you know what an ox goad is? Neither did I. Apparently, I kid you not, 
An ox goad is a stick you use to goad oxen. It's just that. It's a stick. It's a stick that has a ball on the end, probably made of bronze or something, so that when you're standing in the field and you need your oxen to get a move on, you use your stick to poke him. Come on. That's all it is. It's a a pokey device. It's a stick with a ball on the end. It's an ox goad. I've never killed 600 Philistines with a gun. This guy killed 600 Philistines with a stick. The ball on the end. I think here's the point. Shamgar is illustrating that God can use whatever you've got. Isn't isn't that the point of the other ones, too? I mean, Othniel already was a warrior. He just wasn't doing anything about it. Um, Ehud was a left-handed man, and he didn't think he was capable of doing anything with that. Shamgar had nothing but a stick. And yet all three of these are used by God to do something for his purposes, for his people in this world. God can use whatever you've got. On top of that, I'll get more personal. I would say that you can use whatever he gave you. Whatever God has given you, you can use. You don't have to wait around for some sky-to-fall situation. You don't have to wait around for some magical uh, device to show up in your hand. Ehud made his own sword. You don't have to wait around for some skill to develop in your life. Ehud was left-handed, and he just went with it. You don't have to wait. If God is leading you to do something, he can use what you've got, and you can use what he's given you. You don't have to wait around for something more. You don't have to wait around for something extra. He can use what you've got and you can use what he's given you. So I want to end our time today by giving you something that you can take home with you. Because perhaps you feel like one of these three judges. Perhaps you feel like Othniel. You already did your part. Now it's someone else's time. Perhaps you feel like Ehud. You're the wrong person for the job. I mean, other people are so much more qualified than you. Perhaps you feel like Shamgar. The tools at your disposal don't make sense for the job that you feel you need to do. Maybe you're like one of these people. But for these people, none of those hindrances mattered. I want to flood you with a bunch of verses right now just to close out our time that I hope will be an encouragement to you. 1 John 4.4 You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The presence of the Spirit makes all the difference. It made all the difference for Othniel. And that Spirit is in you. Look at this next one. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Back then, the Spirit came to one person individually for a period of time and then might leave that person, but not anymore. To each one who's a follower of Jesus, each individual one who's a follower of Jesus, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Not for your individual good, for all of our good. Look at this one. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead 
will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. The spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. The power of resurrection is alive in you and in me. Look at this next one. Jesus himself said, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The Spirit of God, according to Jesus himself, is going to take everything that Jesus ever has been and he's going to bring it to us. Look at this next one. Very truly, Jesus says, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And now, perhaps you're asking the question, well, what is it that Jesus has done? I'm going to read you his own mission statement from Luke chapter 4. Jesus went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus lived in a time where famine was present, where oppression from the Romans was every day, where poverty was around every sunrise or sunset. Jesus lived in a day where debt would put you in prison. Jesus lived in a day where a scratch on your knee would lead to your death. Jesus was alive in a day where three years after he got on the public scene, nails would be hammered through his hands and feet and he would be hung on a cross in disgrace just because some people wanted to see someone dead. And we complain about 2020 being a bad year. And Jesus proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. The world needs a hero. The world needs a bunch of heroes. A bunch of heroes who can look at the craziness of our world, the stupidity of some of the things that we're seeing in this world, and who can simply say, God's favor is not done. It is still available to you and to me right now in this moment today. His grace is still present. His spirit is still at work. God's grace and love and peace is still available to every single one of us. The only question is whether or not we are ready to step into it and live according to it. I'm going to give you this one final thing to take home. Because of God's Spirit in us, God can use whatever you've got to make you a hero for Him. Because of His Spirit in us, God can use whatever you've got to make you a hero for Him. Listen, I want to give you the opportunity this week to see yourself as a spirit-filled hero. There's a lot of stuff in this world we can p- com- 
complain about. There's a lot of stuff in this world that we can get down and frustrated over. But I'll tell you what, there is a God whose spirit is still at work. And there is a God who has still given gifts to his people. And there's a God who still is planning to announce the year of the Lord's favor, even in 2020. This year can be the year of God's favor for any one of us who would simply receive it. Because by his spirit, he will give us what we need for us to do what he's calling us to do. And by his spirit, he will use whatever you've got to make you into a hero for him. I want to thank you for joining us today. And I want to pray that God would be at work in your life this week. I encourage you to come out sometime and pray for the people around this church building. I encourage you to come out this evening and pray through the neighborhoods a little bit and then join us outside as we spend some time in worship and prayer. Bring a lawn chair if you want or blankets if they're thick enough to be comfortable on the asphalt back here. Bring a picnic dinner if you want to do that, but we're going to hang out. We're going to have some good time with each other. And I just want to encourage you to be part of the solution, to be part of the team of heroes that God is building in this world today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.